Hey, welcome to this edition of Beck's Podcast. I'm Jim Schwartz, Director of Research Agronomy and PFR here at Beck's. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about PFR. We're going to release the book pretty soon. It should be hitting mailboxes prior to Christmas. So I thought we'd just do a, a pre-Christmas podcast to discuss PFR and some of our learnings this year. With me today, Jason Gayheimer. Jason is the PFR manager based here out of Atlanta. Brady Rogers. Brady is the PFR lead, also based here out of Atlanta. And then Travis Burnett. Travis is a field agronomist in northern Indiana. And Travis is intimately involved with practical farm research here and uh, helps us a lot with some of our studies, uh, with the protocol development. And then he's involved with the 400 bushel plot here as well. So Jason, we'll start with you. Uh, what was your favorite PFR study this year and or favorite learning from, uh, from practical farm research here in the 2020 growing season? It's a good question. It's a question we get every year, multiple times, right? So this year's a little different for me than than normal. Uh, we, you know, we've always tested a lot of a lot of new products, and you know, we did that this year as well. But one of the new things that we did was we started thinking more about in season decision making and and what types of studies we can design to to help answer those year in and year out. And so some of the ones we did, we went back and we re, were revisiting replant thresholds. Uh, some of the data we've been been utilizing to make recommendations is, in, in our opinion, getting a little bit outdated. Um, so we want to come back and revisit some of that. You know, hybrids and varieties have, have changed a lot in that time frame as well. So revisiting corn and soybean uh, replant thresholds, then looking at some studies where, uh, you know, you're going to keep that stand and it's economically profitable to keep a, say, lesser lesser stand, a thin sporadic stand, how do we manage that to finish out the season? You know, do we still put the same input towards it or do we do we cut back? And so some of the learnings off of, of those studies were, were pretty incredible. Um, some of them turned out the way we thought they might and some didn't. And uh, multi-location data uh, shows really well for, for a lot of those things and looking forward to continuing those to get uh, multi-year, multi-location data sets. So new studies, that's, uh, that's, that's cool because there, there is a growing interest in how do we make end-season decisions as opposed to, you've heard me talk about the post-mortem post agriculture. It's like we need to start making these decisions real-time end-season. So that would be very interesting. Uh, Brady, you spend a lot of time with planters and planter setups, and, and I know you build a bunch of planter bars with different row units. Uh, from your learnings and practical farm research, what would you say the one or two things, if you're talking to a grower, here's where you start if you're going to build that perfect planter? Um, yeah, so if you're going to start somewhere, I think start easy and then start working your way up from that. Um, easiest thing to do is closing wheels, obviously. Uh, that could be a two-bolt two bolt per row and change two closing wheels out and then move on, or there's a lot of companies doing like poly twisters where you can get the rings where you can actually use your existing ones. Um, so that's probably your easiest one. There's a lot of good, we've been kind of known to test closing wheels. And I feel like we've tested almost all of them underneath the sun and even some of the newer technology closing wheels like furrow force right now. Uh, we got our hands on those. So you'll see our data here coming here soon. Um, but that's the easiest one. Following that, I'd say it's probably a tie between getting starter on a planter and hydraulic downforce. Uh, those two are really even to me. I think they both have their huge benefits regardless of what uh, system you're in, whether you're in a no-till, conventional till scenario. Um, but just having that hydraulic downforce to change so quickly and get all of those plants at an even planting depth and have even emergence um, has been showing to pay really big through the hydraulic downforce system. And then our two by two by two data, putting that starter on the planter, it creates a little bit of headache for some farmers, but the benefit is so large that 
it kind of tends to pay for itself on headache, I think. Yeah, the two by two by two has been very consistent over multiple years now, so yeah. for sure. Um, Travis, you, you've helped us a lot as it related to the 400 bushel plot. You, you've helped manage the inputs. When you think about it, first of all, how did we do in the 400 bushel plot this year? The results are going to be in the book. But then if you could take some learnings and, and share it with growers, say, here are some things we learned. Um, what would they be? And what did we do on the plot this year? We did finally break 400 bushel. So that's a, a big, uh, big exciting, I guess, thing from, from PFR. We've been, been trying to do that for three years now since that plot's been up and running. So, um, yeah, pretty excited about that. I think it was 406 and change bushels. Mm -hmm. Um, so lots of key things went into that, but really the biggest thing, Jim, um, what makes it fun for me and why I'm excited to be involved with that project is we, to, we, we get the opportunity to relearn what we think we know about growing corn. Uh, once you get into those high of, of yield environments, um, especially from a fertility standpoint, it's all brand new territory again. Uh, simple things with nitrogen management, sulfur in particular. Um, Micronutrients in, in, in uh, particular are one thing that we've learned a lot with this year through our extensive tissue testing. Um, those are the things that we're, we're relearning and trying to get our, I guess, grasp our, our heads around again and uh, figure out what we can do through a drip system like that um, since we have the ability to, to fertigate throughout the season basically anytime we want. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, I think for me, you know, the other learning I, I took away from it was, interestingly enough, in multiple years now, it's not been the uber high populations in narrow rows that have delivered those yields, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, they've been higher than normal, right? right. Um, yep. But not as high as what we, we tested. So uh, we're utilizing a, a concept planter that we, we actually built uh, with a 10-inch row configuration. And uh, we tested populations all the way up to almost equidistant spacing, which would be 63,000 plants per acre. And actually what we found the last, I guess two of the last three years where we've done that research, 44,000 plants per acre has been yeah. kind of where we've maximized yield uh, in that 10 inch row. So, um, I mean, that's still pretty high compared to what mm -hmm. most guys are doing traditionally today. Um, but yeah, we didn't have to go as high as what maybe we thought we did. And uh, really the big piece has been fertility management. Uh, nitrogen to sulfur ratio, something, things that we thought we had figured out or relearning in those, those uh, high yield environments. Yeah, you, you know, you think when we irrigate like we do and the, the ground we have, you think, man, it, it's really going to respond to 55,000 or whatever. But no, nah, it really was those, what I would consider to be more moderate populations right. uh, in, in the 10 inch rows. And to your point too, one of the learnings I've taken away is it just feels like we, we to really go after these high yields probably requires more fertility throughout the growing season maybe even i suspected right mm -hmm. so more and the timing is yep. uh, something we've learned a lot with with micronutrients in particular zinc and boron being the the two two biggest ones that we've we've learned that we can really move the needle with those particular nutrients with ultra late applications um you know, even through the, towards the end of the grain fill period, especially with zinc, a lot of zinc gets remobilized from the plant, um, from the plant tissue into the grain itself. And we were able to see that through the tissue testing that we did all throughout the season and make uh, applications all the way through till I'd say half milk layer with zinc even and get some positive responses yeah. out of it. So, Brady, uh, you had mentioned downforce. So we, we tested delta force row to row. Um, how important, you've done a lot of work now with high-speed planting, right? Tell, what are your thoughts about high-speed planting? And then it, do, do we have to have, is that kind of that downforce, kind of a base, base starter point as we think about high-speed planting? 
Yeah, I think high-speed planning, I think, is an excellent technology, and I think it's a way for guys to use um, smaller planners and get more accomplished, uh, whether that be you purchasing a 12-row planner instead of a 16 or a 24-row and just being able to plant faster with less row units and still have still maintain the exact same amount of accuracy. Uh, jumping back to the hydraulic downforce, hydraulic downforce is a must with high-speed planning because when you think about your other forms of downforce, whether that be uh, pneumatic downforce or spring downforce, they just don't react quick enough. Spring, mm -hmm. well, springs don't react, but as far as pneumatic, it, it doesn't change quick enough for you to maintain consistent ground contact uh, clear across that entire field going, the, going that fast and creating that much, uh, I guess, vibration in the planter, and it just makes everything kind of, I guess, get planted at different mm -hmm. like depths clear yep. across the entire field. Sure. Jason, um, we spend a lot of time doing fungicide research. We, we test what time of the day to apply it. We test different products. Um, what was the learning this year as it related to fungicides? <laughs> so this year it was a uh, fungicide yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> it didn't matter what location, what time of day, whether there was dew on the plant, not on the plant. Uh, corn, soybeans, you know, R3's still been that moneymaker for us. We're, we're still trying to unlock going beyond R3, you know, whether that's before or after or, you know, doing a combination, but just R3 is so important with, with soybeans and fungicide that it's, it's tough to beat that one time perfect R3 app. Uh, still trying to still trying to accomplish that, but uh, this year's data when we did another timing study showed R3 one one pass was still the best, and corn was phenomenal. You know we had some southern rust come in and a couple of locations, and we had big big time yield gains for for fungicide. And within our research too, you know that when you look at our fungicide research, they're in they're in plots, right? They're not full full field scale research. So typically, what we do see is our fungicide response is just a little bit less than what guys experience in the mm -hmm. field because yeah. of just having more grass alleyways and more more air movement and just less less chance for disease, heavy disease pressure to sit in and compared to the large field environment so usually we're we're a couple bushel lower than than what you see in the field environment and so um it was really impressive this year to to see the the fungicide data that that we that we pulled in how about you talked about hey i've got a i've got a uh, reduced stand and mm -hmm. uh, we did some interesting studies what we learn as it related to hey should i apply a fungicide or should i not apply a fungicide if i end up with a reduced bean stand or corn stand in the mid-20s is it is it worth does it still pay uh you know honestly we don't have enough data to, to give a solid recommendation on that right that's why it's exciting that we're going to get another t uh, probably two years uh, on some of these trials before we really feel confident in that recommendation and you know, uh, from a fungicide standpoint, it, it really didn't, like I said before, it didn't matter this year where I think in years past, it, it would, it would make a little bit of a difference in, 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 in seeing that. So, um, it, you know, not enough there to give a recommendation yet, but it, uh, promising data, especially on the nitrogen side with the thin stand management, there were, there was a location, uh, that showed that maybe once you get to a, a pretty low sporadic stand and you're keeping it, maybe you can cut back nitrogen a little bit, but we also had for the most part, a lot of our locations had a pretty good mineralization going on too. So that's why you just, it's so important to get multi-year, multi-location data before making solid recommendations, especially on something as important as these in-season decision-making. Travis, um, we talked a little bit, we started a new study this year, multiple locations. It was, it's deep placement or banding of fertilizer, okay? Mm -hmm. 
built some bars. Uh, Yetter helped supply some of the, the parts to build those bars. It was a Valmar, I think, right? Valmar box. So when here in Indiana, at least, we looked at that from the get-go, huge growth differences, right? We were one and a half, two leaf stages ahead where we banded and we, we compared different rates to this, uh, different rates. And it was broadcast no-till, broadcast conventional till, and then banded deep placement, right? Six to eight inches below. But when we got the data back, didn't really tell the story we expected it to tell. And I thought you had an interesting idea or interesting thought about why that might have been this year and why it's so important to do multi-year <laughs> research. Yeah, so so with PFR, um, a lot of times when you see a big visual difference, like you mentioned, sometimes there's not any yield difference, right? And especially with corn, that's it's tricky with corn because when I think of corn, I think there's, I think of three key kind of developmental stages in a corn crop, right? The first thing we have to do, Brady kind of hit on it with the, with the planter, we have to get that, that crop up even, okay? We need even stain establishment. And ultimately it's because, you know, corn's really only gonna make one viable ear per plant, okay? And we need all those to come up at the same time so we have um, very consistent uh, emergence and development throughout the year so that those ears are consistent in size, right? We don't want any of those to be behind. We don't need any any of those to become a weed um, out there. So that, that's the first kind of key stage. The second one really in my mind that, that's really big or uh, impactful is the timing of pollination. And that, that's where um, I, th I think we kind of missed the, the mark this year. Um, where we did see the advantage to the, the deep banding of that fertilizer, and we saw those plants were about two growth stages ahead, mm -hmm. uh, there was one time this whole summer during the pollination period uh, where we had some less than ideal weather. Okay, it was hot and it was dry, and that was in the middle of July here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, it just so happens that, that that corn that was further ahead, it actually pollinated further ahead, okay, and it pollinated in that less than ideal time. Uh, where the, the corn that was further behind with the broadcast applications actually pollinated in better weather. Better weather. Okay? Yep. So just because we had an advantage early on, doesn't mean that advantage is going to translate to more yield later in the season. So this so happens that, that um, that's the case this year with, with how that worked out. You know, more times than not, pollinating earlier is going to be an advantage. Right. right. Typically we have cooler temperatures, more moisture available earlier in the year once we get into that you know July time frame where we're typically pollinating. Right. So, um, kind of an anomaly. Um, I, I would expect over time, if we continue to do this research, we'll see an advantage to that earlier development, that quicker development where we're banding the fertility. Uh, but again, every year um, things are different. Has There's unique challenges every year, kind of what Jason mentioned. It, it's hard to make a recommendation based off of just one year's worth of research. And that's why we do this research at multiple locations, multiple years before we come out with a recommendation on how to uh, manage that crop. So. Jason, speaking of multiple years and multiple sites and, and coming out with a recommendation, nitrogen rate by hybrid po planting population, okay? We've, we've done this research, and this year we've got a new PFR-proven practice as it relates to nitrogen rate and, and population. Now, Thanksgiving's coming up. A lot of folks are going to have uh, maybe, well, depending on COVID regulations, <laughs> they're, they're going to have more people in their house, right? So they make more food. Right, to, they got to feed more people. Mm -hmm. That concept apply. What have we learned now after three years of doing research as we increase our corn planting population? I know historically 190 pounds has been that PFR proven rate. What have we learned as we increase planting populations as it relates to nitrogen rates? Uh, it does not correlate with nitrogen. Uh, more plants does not necessarily mean you need to put that same ratio of increased nitrogen on. Uh, across those acres so you know as we as we increase population um, we also increase nitrogen 
and it didn't hold true to to follow that right so it it was not profitable for us across many locations many data sets uh many different you know different growing you know we've had three really you i would say different growing yeah. seasons in that data set and and you know when you look at all that combined in the one multi-year multi-location data set it uh it does not hold true that you need to put more nitrogen on just because you're increasing your planting population now and we split apply and i think we've had some pretty good mineralization this year and and so maybe that impacts the data but it's just pretty interesting to see that that 190 pound rate has been the the economic optimum rate not necessarily the highest yield but the economic optimum rate now so it's it is a pfr proven practice brady we did something new and different here at the atlanta location you were thrilled to engage in it i know initially but uh, organic that was a whole and I, i'm kidding brady because it's it's pretty labor intensive right um tell us a little bit about what you learned as as you think about the organic work we did here in Atlanta this year we did 23 acre blocks so tell us a little bit about that <laughs> man Jim I tell you what what I actually learned is that I know nothing about organic <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, what that's a learning for folks as they engage that in it is too. Yeah. Um, like you said it is very labor intensive and it's hard to control weeds and when you've had your mind wrapped around our general herbicide um, practices in the past and trying to figure out and we've learned a little bit we used a row crop cultivator mostly through the season um, and we were I know there's a lot of guys using weed zappers right now but the whole weed management was it was just something that was I guess I was struggling to wrap my head around on how to actually control because between the row was super easy to control what well, whatever came up in the row it's almost impossible. Yeah. And so we've learned a little bit, and I think I've talked to enough guys that I think we need to go kind of in the route of a rotary hoe, kind of early in the season, kind of get the stuff that comes up in the row. But yeah, it's still a massive learning curve. Yeah, for sure. And there's lots. I mean, we did a number of different studies. We tried we tried 60 inch row corn with a cover crop down the middle. Uh, we had really high yields here. Uh, I don't think that one turned out quite as well for us this year, did it, from your experience? No, from my experience, um, yeah, we talked about the 60s and we planted them. They looked kind of funny and we interceded some cover crop and stuff in between, which they were supposed to fixate some nitrogen and stuff, but we just didn't see the benefit like we hoped to in the 60s. But we'll keep doing the research. I know, Travis, you've got some interesting ideas as it relates to row width and, and cover crops and tillage as, as it relates to because we did learn one of the things we learned is weed management is one of the keys in organic uh, organic farming right so we'll continue to learn and do that research we also had a couple products that we've tested one from brant and uh, we even did some nitrogen testing supplying nitrogen late in the year we did we did see some good responses to the i think it was organic right organic nitrogen mm -hmm. so be interested, sodium nitrate right yeah yeah so that'll be really interesting to see uh, as we go forward um let's talk about seed treatments so uh jason ha i don't even know how many years of seed treatments on soybean data do we have don't even know a lot a lot yeah <laughs> so where we did so we had a pretty good planting season this year really it was it was not that bad the conditions were good what we learn on seed treatments yeah the same thing we really we, we just keep relearning it is they're just they're so important uh, i think sometimes we just overlook the value of seed treatments i know we don't hear at bex but i think sometimes sometimes uh you know we can we can overlook those small things and when we're you know our recommendation at least for the last couple of years and going forward has been to start planting beans earlier start treating your soybeans like you treat your corn 
um, and, and there, you know, we can push those yields in soybeans. And, and so a lot, a lot of us are starting to do that. And that makes the, the power of seed treatment even more important. And so we always try to plan our seed treatment trials early in the season, stress them a little bit. And, and so we saw some big gains with seed treatment this year, uh, you know, with the, with, with even, even having a, a growing season where there wasn't a lot of stress, but just planting them early. And then, uh, there were a few stresses here and there. So, um, pretty important, pretty impactful. Travis, um, we didn't have to deal with it this year in most areas, but in some years um, we, we have delayed planting. And growers are faced with this question about, do I need to switch my hybrid maturity? What, what, what do I do? Um, oftentimes they'll move to a really early, almost unadapted, or sometimes unadapted hybrid. So we've done this study a couple of years now, and it seems like it's been pretty consistent results. What are your learnings? What are your thoughts on that? So we're big advocates of uh, sticking with the plan, right? We, we spend a lot of time, especially this time of year with hybrid placement and getting the right hybrid on the right acre. And uh, a lot of guys get, get gung shy, right? When we get to a delayed planted situation on, on switching hybrids and worrying about that corn finishing uh, and, you know, don't want that thing to get frosted mm -hmm. off there before uh, reaching black layer and dealing with high moisture corn in the fall. Uh, but really uh, what it comes down to is corn matures differently um, in a late planted situation than it does in an early planted situation. So when we get past uh, roughly the first week of May, um, the, the GDUs that are required for that corn to reach pollination or even to reach black layer actually shrinks down yep. quite a bit. It's pretty significant. I think it's around seven GDUs a day, mm -hmm. I think, on average. Yep. Um, so again, the further that planting is delayed past that, that mark, um, so last year there's a lot of June planted corn um, in 2019, and a lot of that, you know, June, second week of June planted corn, um, even 110, 112 day uh, corn uh, in the northern half of Indiana, a lot of that finished, uh, I, would, I would say it's a little behind normal, right. but it, it finished a lot quicker than what you would expect because of that. Okay, so we spend more time or a longer period of time throughout the day at higher temperatures. The mm -hmm. average temperature each day is higher the later we get in a late planted situation and corn adapts to that and it matures faster in a late planted situation. So uh, last thing we want to do is bring a hybrid that's not adapted to that, the area where we're at. And uh, really what we've found, I mean, we've seen, you know, upwards of 50 and 60 bushel yield swings where we brought a hybrid that was way outside of its maturity zone, right, further south than where it should have been, uh, opposed to sticking with the plan with a, a fuller season corn that was, that was selected for that field, for this environment. So uh, more times than not, we're gonna stick with that plan. If it gets so late that even that's not an option, then you know, we're going to switch out of corn completely. Uh, eventually, you know, if it gets to that point, right, into the middle of June or so, and that's a whole different story then. For so. sure. So, Jason, let's, we're going to start wrapping this up. Um, we talked about some new things. You talked about some in-season decision-making. Uh, we talked about organic was new this year, but there's a whole other section. It's like 34, 36 different pages in the PFR book. A little different twist on PFR research. What's in that section? Herbicide, uh, anything and everything herbicide. So Joe Bolte, our herbicide specialist in uh, Effingham, Illinois, has been kind of spearheading that effort for us at Bex, and and we, you know, we're starting to host what we call herbicide insight days there at Effingham, uh, as well as we're branching that to to Henderson, Kentucky, and then probably beyond that here before too long. And so we're really, really diving deep into herbicide research, and it's it's small scale visual visual ratings. It's not the typical go, taking things to yield type of type of research that we've done across 
uh, multi-location PFR. So it's it's really with all the changes in herbicide and 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 trait platforms and everything, uh, we're just trying to be cutting edge and make sure we're there to be able to give good, solid agronomic research around herbicide or recommendations around herbicide. And um, so that, that that section of the book there in the front is is very impactful. A lot a lot to be to be learned from that that section this year. Yeah, weed management. I, I've spoken to a lot of groups here lately and I've shared with them that as we move forward, you know, weed management might not, as we move forward, may not involve opening a jug. Mm-hmm. And we may have yep. to talk about things like cover crops and row width and things like that. To, and, and we're doing a lot of research on that. So, um, Brady, any closing thoughts as we wrap up anything as it relates to this growing season and PFR or what you're looking forward to and anything like that? Uh, I think it was it was a really good growing season. I think we learned a lot, but I think we were kind of spoiled this year compared to last year. So I yeah. think it was just a good season all in all. Um, like what Jason said, I think the biggest things wrapping up are those in-season decision-making um, ideas that were kind of helping guys decide on what to do when something doesn't end up perfectly. Uh, so those are the biggest things that's in my mind uh, moving forward. Yeah. Travis, anything as you think about PFR um, this year, what to think about? Um, you know, you know, there's really when it, when I think of PFR and how we utilize PFR, um, I want to focus a lot on the multi-year, multi-location data, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes guys get too hung up on single location or single year data and make make really drastic changes to their farm right out of the gate, and a lot of times that's not a, not a smart move, right? We we live in a pretty dynamic or we, we're operating a pretty dynamic system, right? Every year is unique, every year is different. Um, let's make decisions based off of multi-year, multi-location research to make a, the most informed decision that we can. And really that's where we've we've focused a lot of our efforts as, as, a, as a group here with PFR, uh, doing more research around that and making recommendations around that, that multi-year data. That's why the first two sections of the book are PFR proven and then multi-location data for sure. Yep. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really exciting for me about as we think about PFR is uh, I started early on in this podcast talking about post-mortem agriculture and how we get to the end of the year and we look at our yield maps and we say, oh, I should have done this. But the problem is, of course, next year is going to be completely different. So one of the things I'm looking forward to, and I hope you all are as well, is we're going to start taking our practical farm research data and integrating it into our farm server platform, our digital ag platform, to help you make decisions in season, real time, that can impact your bottom line, as opposed to waiting to the end of the year. Um, we're going to start working to really integrate those two things together. And I think it's going to be a very powerful tool for growers moving forward. Finally, uh, insight meetings. So, uh, you know, it's a COVID world. And we're all just living in it right now. So we are going to have insight meetings, but they're going to be virtual this year. So look for some information coming out here. The, we're going to host them. They're going to be live streamed the third week of January. Uh, you'll, you'll get more information, but we plan to share this information. We're going to talk about eight different topics. We'll have live q and very excited to continue to offer insight meetings and uh, sharing with you some of the insights we've learned in practical farm research. So thanks for joining us today. With me again, Travis Burnett, Brady Rogers, Jason Gayheimer. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.